Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, this morning, we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in through this summer called More to the Story, Bible Stories You Thought You Knew. And throughout this series, we're looking at some of the most familiar and really most incredible stories in the Bible. And as we visit those stories, we're trying to pull out the details and meaning that maybe we missed some of the other times that we've heard the story. We're looking at how all of the stories, even the most old stories that we find in the Bible, all of them were pointing to Jesus and ultimately hopefully finding that in each story there is a relevance and a hope for our lives Today And so some of the stories we've looked at so far are Noah's Ark. We looked at Joseph and his multicolored dream coat. We looked at the crossing of the Red Sea. Last week we looked at David and Goliath. And those are just some of the stories that we've looked at. And if you're interested in any of those, you can go back and catch those on our YouTube channel, PCTRNJ, or our podcast. But this morning, as we move into the message, I'm wondering, how do you do with surprises? You know, it probably depends on the nature of the surprise, doesn't it? So my brother-in-law, Brad, was dating his now wife, Kelly, for a long time. And they eventually went on a cruise with the rest of the family, and he thought, man, this is the perfect opportunity. And so he had a, a room on the back of the boat with a deck, and it was sunset, and so he called Kelly to the deck, and he got down on a knee and pulled out of his pocket, and now Kelly's really kind of an emotional sort, and so she, you can imagine this surprise, this moment she's been waiting for, and as Brad then opens the box, he fumbles the ring and bloop, right over the side of the boat. Now you can imagine the surprise and the feelings and the shock and the horror and the tears and all that went into that. But the real surprise is it wasn't the real ring. That gives you a little insight into Brad and his personality. Surprise! See, today's story is filled with surprises and unexpected twists. And so we're going to just jump right into the story. It's known as the healing of Naaman. We find it in 2 Kings chapter 5. If you want, you can follow along on the screen. But together, let's listen for God's word as it speaks into, as he speaks into our lives this morning. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded Because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. 
As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple, temple of Rimon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. And let's pray as we move into this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to gather with a confidence that you are here in this place. We thank you for your word that speaks into all the circumstances of our lives. May you give us ears to hear. May you bless the reading of your word. May it become alive for us today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this story is full of details and twists and surprises, and some of them are a little lost on us probably because we're so removed culturally from what's going on. But it, it begins with surprises right in the very first verses. The first surprise is that it begins outside of Israel. Now this, this book of the Bible was written to the people of God known as Israel, and so they really were the central, they felt like they were the central character of their history. But this story starts in a neighboring land called Aram. Not only a neighboring land, but with a neighboring person, Naaman, who we're told is a great man, a soldier, valiant in battle, and that the Lord had given him great victories. Now this is weird, because here it is, an enemy of people's, the people of God. God is blessing and giving victory, but not just victory in general, victory over Israel. And so this would have been hard to swallow. So there's a number of surprises. But another surprise is that Naaman has leprosy. Leprosy is a, a word in the Bible that it, it means all sorts of different kinds of skin diseases and ailments, and we're not exactly sure what it meant, but it would have not been a very comfortable thing. But in addition to that, it was understood at the time that physical ailments were tied to moral failure. 
So if you were sick, it's because of something you did or something somebody else, your parents may have done. And so it was a result of moral failure. And so this is another surprise. But I mean, the great surprise in the whole thing is that this is a story of God's blessing and favor on Naaman. And this is a surprise. And we find in this that sometimes God's blessing is for people that we don't expect. Sometimes God is favoring those that we don't really understand. See, because Naaman was, he was all wrong from the perspective of the people of God, right? He's the wrong tribe. He's an enemy. He's a physical outcast. He's a moral failure. It's like the list can't get much worse of all the reasons that they think God should be cursing him, and yet this story is a, God, a story of God's blessing on him. And so maybe for you this morning, the word that you need to hear is that God has a plan that might be bigger and even surprising, not just for Naaman, but maybe for you. And if you feel like you're that outcast, you feel like there really are things stacked up against you that automatically disqualify you from the, the life, the full and good and rich life that God intends for you, then maybe the surprise is that God is actually for you, wants to bless you. Or maybe the surprise this morning is that God may have a bigger plan, a surprising plan for the people in your life who you don't really like, that you just would like to push to the side, that maybe they're the ones who are typically outcast, marginalized, the ones that you don't understand and can't stand. God might have a bigger plan, a surprising plan even for them. Because as the story unfolds, we see more surprises emerge. Like the slave girl who's taken back captive doesn't have any bitterness for Naaman. As a matter of fact, she wants him to get better. And so she tells her mistress all about this prophet, this guy in Israel, who she thinks could heal him. So Naaman gets filled with some hope and goes to his own king, the king of Aram, and says, hey, what do you think? King of Aram is like, all right, absolutely go. You know, he's a highly regarded servant. So the king is like, hey, and I'll even write a, a letter to the king of Israel as a commendation. So Naaman takes off, and with the letter, he takes 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 you know, kind of ornate sets of clothing, all of these as gifts in really, maybe we could almost say as payment for his healing. And Naaman sets out for Israel. He gets audience with the king of Israel, and the first response of the king is he thinks it's all a big setup. He tears his robes in disgust and indignation and says, am I God? See, he knows he doesn't have the power to heal this man. He understands that, that God is the one who gives and sustains life. God is the one who can heal against all odds. He's the one who can do the unexpected. And he's overwhelmed because all he can see is his own limitations, his own humanity, his own ability. And he knows he can't heal Naaman. And so he thinks this enemy king is just setting him up for a fight when he fails to heal him. And, and the thing is, the king of Israel doesn't consider the possibility that God has some bigger plan. He doesn't consider the possibility that there is a surprise, and particularly that Elijah, Elisha the prophet was the one that God would use to do it. And he should have thought of that. Because if you read the rest of 2 Kings, Elisha has a reputation He's got a reputation of doing all sorts of other miracles, of, of healing people, of providing miraculously when there was nothing to be had to eat. I mean, so he had this reputation. But he also was clearly in close proximity to the king. 
And, we, and so he would have been really easy to just call in and see what he could possibly do. We, we know that because it didn't take long for word to get to Elisha that the king had torn his robes in indignation. And so Elisha sends word to the king and says, I don't know what your problem is. That's kind of my paraphrase. It doesn't exactly say that. I don't know what your problem is. Just send it. I'll deal with this. You send him to me and this man and everybody else will know that there's a prophet in Israel and really behind that is they'll understand that there's a God I represent that can do surprising and unexpected things. And so Naaman rolls up to Elisha's house with his whole entourage. We're told there's horses and chariots, all a sign of his status. He was a high official in the kingdom of of Aram. And as he comes to Elisha's house, Elisha just sends out a simple messenger with a simple message. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River and you will be healed. Now, Naaman is furious. He's so angry because this does not make sense to him. Right? A man of his status, a man of his wealth, of his influence, deserves more, deserves a special treatment, expects that the man of God, Elisha, will at least come out, see him face to face, and address his issue personally and directly. You know, and, and doesn't this happen today? Frequently, people who are of particular means or status Sometimes they expect and sometimes they are given special treatment. Right? Sometimes they can get the reservation that you can't possibly get. They can get service in the store that you don't seem to be able to have. They might have access to medical care that's not available to everybody else. Their kids might get attention in school or on teams that other kids aren't getting. See, Naaman expected special treatment. Expected Elisha to come out and deal with him, but instead, Elisha surprises him with a simple messenger and a simple message. See, and Naaman was just as angry about the message as he was the messenger. You go, go wash in the Jordan River? He's disgusted. He can't believe it. This doesn't make sense. Because are not the, the rivers of Abana and Farpar, so much greater than the Jordan River. I mean, these are the rivers from the place where he just came from. And, and we don't exactly know why they were so much better. Maybe they were cleaner. Maybe they were bigger. Maybe they had, were said to have magical properties. We don't really know. But clearly, he's disgusted by the Jordan River as an option. Shouldn't I have just washed in those rivers and have been cleansed? The Jordan River is beneath him. And I think if we're honest when we look at our lives... We can be a lot like Naaman. You know, when things don't make sense to us, things are beneath us, things aren't going the way that we hope that they will go. I don't know about you, but I, I can get angry. I can frequently get angry at myself because it didn't work out the way it was supposed to. I failed to follow through. I get angry with others if they're the reason that things aren't going the way I hope they'll go. I get angry at God when life isn't working out the way that I expect it to work out. So he's angry. But Naaman's servants aren't, you know, they're not concerned about all this. All they really care about is that Naaman would get healed, and so they try to talk him down. And they start reasoning with him and respectfully saying, my, my father, this term of endearment for him, clearly he's a good man. He's treated them well. And he says, if the prophet had, had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? 
In other words, if he had told you to go do some incredible feat of strength, or if he had told you to go do something miraculous, wouldn't you have done it if that's what it was going to take to get you healed? But his problem is he just has to listen and choose the path of humility, not the path of greatness. This reminded me a lot of the scene in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Lion, they get to first file, they get to see the wizard or at least that flaming freaky head thing that's supposed to be the, the wizard, right? And they're pleading their case to get some help and the wizard, you know, is basically cutting them down constantly, insulting them, and, but he does eventually say, silence. The beneficent Oz has every intention of granting your requests, but... First, you must prove yourselves worthy by performing a very small task. Bring me the broomstick of the witch of the West. Right? And this makes sense. It makes a great story, but it also makes sense to us. That, of course, they needed to go out and do something great. They realized to get the broomstick, we're going to have to kill the witch. And then they're freaking out. What if she kills us first? And that's actually the whole point, right? That's what makes it a great story. But the thing that we relate to, I think, deeply is there is a natural connection in our mind that a great reward demands a great achievement. To be worthy of something of incredible value and substance, we must prove to be worthy based on what we have done. And this makes so much sense. This is what Naaman's mindset is like. Because he wants to to prove that he's worthy. And why do we want to prove that we're worthy so badly? Because it feels good, doesn't it? Because if I'm worthy, that probably means other people aren't worthy. And I can feel pretty good about myself to be among the few that are actually worthy. Right? We want to feel justified. We want to feel good about what we're receiving in our lives and Yet that's not at all what Naaman experiences. He has to humble himself, choose this this path of washing in the dirty, small, whatever, Jordan River, and receive the gift of healing. Why is it so hard to receive gifts? Why is it so hard? Have you ever received, I mean, a significant gift? The kind that made you feel awkward and uncomfortable? kind that you're like, there's, there's no way I can pay this back. In other words, there's no way that I could be worthy of this gift that I've received. Why do we feel so awkward? Because there's something in us that says, I'm not worthy of this. And Naaman's aware. He's humbled. We're not exactly sure how that happened. We're not exactly sure what the processing in his mind as he moved from this place of feeling like he needed to achieve it and earn it to this point of saying, okay, I'm going to humble myself, walk down to the river, I'm going to clean myself seven times. But what we do know is he, in humility, finally does what he's told to do. Man, it's hard to do what we're told to do. But in humility, he goes and he's made clean. He's healed. See, and this is the real surprise He was such a great man, good to his servants, a hero, a valiant warrior, a champion, and yet he couldn't overcome this fundamental problem in his life. 
by any amount of achievement. Instead, he had to let go of all of his pride, let go of all of the things that would make him stand on his own two feet and say, I'm valuable, I'm worthy, and humbly receive the gift. That's a surprise. I don't think it makes sense in our minds. But this is the pattern of God over and over again. This is part of, as the kids learned this week, God is surprising. God is, there you go, who, those who are here, if you heard that, God is surprising, you're supposed to shout awesome God and point to God. So that's the point. They've been conditioned. I don't know if that, but God's surprising. He is. Because he works in this way that defies our expectation over and over and over again. At the heart of the Christian faith is a giant surprise that we don't really fully understand or expect. Because at the heart of the Christian faith is a cross. You think about that? I mean, you wear a cross? See, for us at this point in history, a cross is a sign of hope. A sign of peace, a sign of love, a sign of joy. But when we back it up historically, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because the cross, historically, in Jesus' day, that cross that he died on, was, a, was an implement of execution, of destruction, and of humiliation. It was the thing the Roman Empire used to make sure that there was fear throughout the empire. Because it, it stretched out the death to the point of excruciating pain. It was an implement of fear, of propaganda, and now it's a symbol of hope. See, this is the way God works. It's surprising. It defies our expectation and our understanding. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that we read earlier, he said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's foolishness. So I was talking to somebody this week who you know, isn't, isn't at all into Christianity, but is, is wondering, searching spiritually, trying to figure out what life is really about, what's true. And so he was asking me, what, so why are you Christian? Like among all these other religions and faiths in the world, why are you Christian? And, and my response to him was something I've thought about for a long time, because on one hand, I feel like the Christian faith makes absolute sense of life in the world. The Christian faith makes sense of how we came to be, makes sense of why there is pain and suffering, makes sense of why the world seems like at times it's falling apart. It also makes sense of why, though people are messed up, there's also incredible beauty because they've been created in the image of a creative and loving God. In so many ways, it makes sense. And it makes sense because this God who is perfect and beautiful, he's made us and he's given us a plan and a purpose. He has a will for our lives. He knows how we're intended to live. Just like uh, uh, the manufacturers of your car. They designed it intentionally. They know what it was made for. They know how to maintain it. They know how to care for it. They know the conditions under which it was made to thrive and flourish. And the problem is sometimes we're trying to drive sports cars on the beach. And it's not working. We're trying to take low riders four-wheeling. In other words, we're living our lives in such a way that it's not in alignment with God's plan and his purpose for us, right? It's not that God just likes having rules over our lives. He's saying, this is what you're made for. It's what's best for you. And so in this regard, to me, life makes a whole lot of sense. And the Christian faith makes a whole lot of sense. 
But where it starts to get confusing, where it becomes foolishness perhaps, is my mind thinks that, okay, then if I've been doing it wrong, what's the logical thing that should happen? If I'm unworthy, I shouldn't receive the gift. If I'm doing it wrong, there should be the natural consequence. Things should break down. There should be judgment. There should be punishment. There should be justice. And that is what the cross tells us. There is judgment and there's punishment. But the foolishness of the whole thing that doesn't make sense is that instead of me being on that cross where I deserve to be, that God himself decided to take on humility, to choose the path of humility. It wasn't just the path for Naaman. It was the path that Jesus took. That if anybody was worthy of honor and respect because of his status, his ability, his influence, it's God himself. And yet in Jesus, he chose to take on that humble human form, taking on our life, our story, living humbly before people as a servant, washing his disciples' feet, healing those who were sick, teaching and loving those who were unworthy, calling to himself the tax collectors, the sinners, the riffraff, and the worst of society so that they could be in a relationship with him. And then at the end of the day, at the end of his life, rather than receiving the reward for a life beautifully and wonderfully well-lived, having earned and achieved it with his, his full being, he laid it down. He sacrificed it on a cross, taking instead the punishment, the death, the destruction, the failure that I deserve, that we deserve on himself, so that in in place, we could receive his reward of life, of joy, of peace, of forgiveness, of healing. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that a perfect and just God would offer us his grace and his mercy. Surprise. Not because we were worthy and achieved it and earned it. See, that's what religion tells us. Religion makes a lot of sense. Religion says you obey, then you're worthy of acceptance. You do it right, you're worthy of reward. But faith, Christian faith says, I'm not worthy. And Jesus stepped into my place, and I receive his reward. And it's because the God of the universe didn't just make you like a car functionally, he made you to love you to guide your life. But we, need to, we have to receive the gift. We have to choose the path of humility. We have to choose the path of foolishness that doesn't really make sense, perhaps even to our own minds or to the world around us. And instead of trusting that I'm gonna be good enough at the end of the day, it's to trust that Jesus is good enough and his reward is your reward. See, this is the unexpected reality of the foolishness of the cross that is the heart of the Christian faith. Let's live in light of that surprise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that <clears throat> we thank you that you don't conform to our understanding. That that you don't fit into the box that makes sense for us. Cuz we acknowledge that 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 karma and reincarnation and religion make sense because it's all dependent on whether we're good enough. It's all dependent on 
if we're worthy of the reward. And Father, we acknowledge that when we look at our lives, honestly, we're not worthy. We don't live up to the plan, the purpose, your design and intent for our lives. Thank you that, that you did what really doesn't make sense and sent your son to die on a cross so that we didn't have to, so that we could receive his reward. And so it's in him, that as we trust him, we receive forgiveness, we receive your acceptance, your love, we receive the gift of new life in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.